Grain markets reverse course from Monday while cattle, well, we've seen two-sided trade, but they're trying to make a third day higher and confirm a bottom. U.S. agriculture tries to flip the script at COP28 amid calls to phase out fossil fuels. How do biofuels fit into the global carbon reduction goals? And Congress rushes to get their to-do list done before year-end. Live from a white chocolate-covered pretzel kind of day via Farm Journal broadcast, this is Agritalk. This morning, we begin with a conversation with Ernie Shea from Solutions from the Land. Then it's Scott Vanderwall from the American Farm Bureau Federation and later Veronica Bradley from the Clean Fuels Alliance America. I'm handsome newsman Davis Michelson and now filling in for Chip, Michelle Rook. Hey, good morning. Good How morning. How are you doing this morning, Davis? I, I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay. You How sound you? like you've already had a pot of coffee. I'm, uh, let's see. I'm midway through my second cup, actually, but I did have some yogurt, and dairy can tend to make me very excitable, is the thing. Okay. Yeah. You are probably not carbon compliant now with the COP28 rules. You know that. Probably not, no. Um, and I'm okay with that, you know? Yeah, I like to buck the trend, too. And we're going to talk a lot about COP28 here today. Um, Ernie Shaw just got back from Dubai, I believe, and so he's going to fill us in a little bit on what's going on there. And I know... There's a lot of, seems like there's a lot of controversy continuing to surround that conference. Absolutely. And I've, I've got a story that I'll highlight some of that controversy that you can expound upon with your guest a little bit later. But yeah, it does seem, it feels like, and I didn't put this in the news either, but Ford is pushing back. They're cutting back on their EV production for the, uh, is it the lightning trucks or whatever EV truck that they were developing there's some pushback against some of this uh electrification stuff yeah and they are seeing these companies that it's so expensive to make these vehicles it's not mm -hmm. cost effective for them so yeah. i think that's the other thing it's just sheer economics yeah you know? well and it's it's funny you know you you can't necessarily mandate what the consumer decides to spend their money on no it's a weird can. concept <laughs> not no. in this economy the consumer always wins, don't they? Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> we shall see. Like I said, um, that'll be part of our focus today. We'll talk a little bit about biofuels. And I've had a lot of meetings that I've been to where producers are asking about carbon intensity scores, what it's going to mean for them. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today with Veronica. And then... Um, Scott Vanderwall is from American Farm Bureau Federation. He's out in D.C. right now, so we'll get a little update from him. But you got a lot of news, so kick us really off do. here, Dave. Hey, and uh, and I I left someone out of the intro. We'll have Karen Boner oh, uh, from Farm Journal's Milk coming up right after the news here, so I got to hustle. Let's begin with the National Weather Service, uh, where they're predicting lake effect snow downwind of the Great Lakes beginning today. Hello, South Bend. Heavy snow potential across the southern Rockies and the high plains. Well, Michelle, in November 2023, the annual inflation rate in the United States slowed to 3.1%, marking the lowest reading in five months. This decline from October's 3.2% rate aligns with market expectations. Now, on a monthly basis, consumer prices edged up by one-tenth of a percentage point, slightly exceeding expectations for a flat reading. Yeah, hopefully that'll help uh, the Fed on their CPI number and their decision tomorrow. Well, for the 12th consecutive week, the nation's average price of gasoline has declined, falling 9.6 cents from a week ago to 3.12 per gallon nationally. The national average is down 23.7 cents from a month ago, 10.1 cents per gallon lower than a year ago. The national average highway diesel price fell 8.4 cents in the last week and stands at $4.10 per gallon, 86 cents below a year ago. The trend is expected to continue in most states this week, while the national average could soon fall below $3.05 per gallon. That would be the lowest since 2021. Yeah, and a gift for the Fed here, helping to curb inflation. Yep. Well, the U.S. Treasury Department is expected to release guidance on sustainable aviation fuel credits by the end of this week, as reported by Reuters. The guidance might address whether corn-based ethanol will qualify more easily for these credits. Interesting here. We're talking about uh, sustainable aviation fuel credits here. Um, yeah, I'll, we'll just leave that go. Yeah, that RIN Efforts, discussion yeah, is a big yes, one. It is. It's huge. 
Efforts to develop a new text for approval at the conclusion of the U.N. COP28 conference brought fossil fuels into the spotlight. The initial draft did not include a clear call for the phase-out of fossil fuels, which several countries were pushing for, um, (laughs) the least of which being the host country, who is an oil-producing nation. Weird how that works. I know. That seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Department of Ag Monday announced more than 200 projects to improve infrastructure, housing, and economic conditions for underserved rural and Native American communities. These projects are funded by a Department of Ag $81 million investment. The House Select Committee on China is considering recommending the revocation of China's permanent normal trade relations status, which was granted to China by the United States in 2000 as part of its accession to the World Trade Organization. And this could uh, this could get ugly. In other news, the International Monetary Fund has agreed to release $900 million in financial assistance to Ukraine. This financial support comes at a crucial time when Ukraine's President Zelensky is urging the U.S. to resolve an impasse related to over $60 billion in military aid. President Joe Biden will host Zelensky at the White House today to discuss aid for the country in its fight against the Russian invasion. And finally, Argentina has temporarily suspended its grain export registry as the government prepares to announce expected economic policy changes under the leadership of new president Javier Millet. Michelle, back over to you. Yeah, thanks. I wanted I didn't interrupt you. I wanted to get through as much as you could here today some really good headlines and now we bring in karen boner to editor of farm journals milk and dairy editorial director good morning karen good morning michelle hey you're going to be uh doing an update here on the state of the dairy industry a report that uh you're going to be looking at the dairy industry for 2024 tell us a little bit more about that well michelle we're Excuse me. Sorry. We're really excited about it. We launched it at the Milk Business Conference in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago to that audience. And we we really want to, to pulse the industry, if you will, and get inside of dairy producers on what their forward motion uh, thoughts and um, plans are. Um, and I had a conversation yesterday, Michelle, with Corey Gillins of Dairy Farmers of America, and they've done something similar. They surveyed their members, if you will, and just so that they can plan for the future. And one statistic that has stuck with me that Corey shared is that there, nearly half of their farms will exit, no longer be milking cows by 2030. Wow. And again, the number came about from a farm survey to the DFA members. So yes, Farm Journal is putting together a state of the dairy industry report for 2024. And we'll be talking about, you know, what the the plans of the American dairy farmers are. Um, basically, we want to know what they're going to invest in, what changes are they planning to make, and ask the tough questions if they'll be still milking cows in the next five to 10 years. So, yeah, I think that there'll be very interesting data that will come from that. And uh, we always want to say what has changed in the industry, but we want to think where are we going with the industry as well. Yeah. So, not less cows, but just less operations? Less operations. In fact, he said, you know, Karen, um, we might have more cows just with less farms. Wow. Well, we look forward to seeing the results of that survey. A lot has changed in the dairy industry, and it's been a tough year here in 2023. Thanks so much, Karen Bonard, editor of Farm Journal's Milk and Dairy Editorial Director. When we come back, Ernie Shea, president of Solutions from the Land. will be talking about COP28. Colorado dairy farmer Britt Dennis knows how important sustainability is in today's marketplace. And she's proud of her farm's efforts. We're here working hard to feed the world, and we're going to do it in a way that you can feel good about. It's important for us to get that message to consumers. And that's something that Checkoff does. Sharing dairy's sustainability story and building trust. See how your Checkoff is making every drop count at usdairy.com. Leave low yields in the dust and never look back. Rev up your return on investment with Syngenta. Our innovative portfolio of crop protection products outperforms and outyields any deal, giving you higher yield and profit potential at the finish line. Syngenta, where better yield is the better deal. Always read and follow label instructions. 
Let's face it, nobody likes to compromise. When it comes to your soybean fields, you shouldn't have to choose between powerful weed control and keeping your crops safe from stress and injury. Thankfully, there's Tendovo, a broad-spectrum pre-emergence herbicide formulated to fight weeds without sacrificing crop safety, delivering a higher potential yield for your fields. Tendovo, raising the pre-emergence bar one clean row at a time. Always read and follow label directions. Please check with your local extension service to ensure registration status. No doubt you've heard of MetLife, but did you know that MetLife Investment Management has over 100 years of ag lending experience? The MetLife Investment Management team maintains close relationships with its borrowers and can structure a customized loan with flexible terms to meet your financial needs. Looking to expand, refinance, or recapitalize? Consider MetLife Investment Management. Learn more at metlife.com forward slash ag. Hello? Man, where are you? I thought you were coming. I can't. I'm in bed with the flu. (laughs) The flu? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Grandma's about to crowd surf. Man, I'll call you back. Don't get stuck at home with the flu. A flu shot is safe, effective, and you can get it at the same time as your COVID-19 vaccine. A flu shot is the best way to prevent the flu and its potentially serious complications. Don't get flu FOMO. Learn more at GetMyFluShot.org. Brought to you by the AMA, CDC, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Ag Day host Clinton Griffiths, and I invite you to join me each morning as we cover the nation's food system, from fields of green to orchards of orange and livestock everywhere in between. America runs on agriculture, and here at Ag Day, agriculture is what we do best. Listen as our analysts track the markets, learn about innovations in technology and sustainability, and live the country lifestyle through the eyes of rural America. Join me, Clinton Griffiths, for Ag Day, the country experience. Do you suffer from talking on the radio phobia? No problem. Send us a tweet at hashtag Agritalk. Welcome back to Agritalk. I'm Michelle Rook in for the vacationing Chip Flory. Well, a lot of headlines this week, obviously, about COP28 and the conference going on in Dubai. Um, Ernie Shea, who is president of Solutions from the Land, just returned back from Dubai. When did you get back, Ernie? And thanks for joining us. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I returned late uh, last Thursday night. We were there. Our team was there for week one. We divide our delegation into two weeks with about half going the first week and half going the second week. So I've been back a few days. All right. The COP28, certainly not without controversy, but you said that's kind of the way COP conferences have kind of been going, right? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, We've been at this for 28 sessions now, the Conference of the Parties, and it's a consensus-based platform. So all it takes is somebody to say no, and it grinds everything to a halt. So there's a lot of back and forth and give and take, uh, and it's a journey over many years. It's not about one cop uh, suddenly we're at the place we want to be. So agriculture has been steadily moving up in terms of our profile recognizing that we're certainly an underutilized solution platform. And that's been one of our core objectives since the beginning, since we started going back in COP15 in 2009. Do you think agriculture is making headway on talking about how farmers are the solution to climate change, even from COP27? Definitely. Um, When you look at the action that took place at COP28 over the last two weeks, First and foremost, the presidency uh, built support from over 140 countries to sign on to the Emirates Declaration on Sustainable Agriculture, Resilient Food Systems, and Climate Action. And that's a big deal uh, because for the first time ever, um, many, many countries actually came forward and said agriculture is a priority. And not just in the context of climate change, but recognizing the food system insecurities that are paramount uh, today. Climate is a threat multiplier to food nutrition security. So I think there's a gradual recognition that we can't just manage for climate outcomes. We've got to manage for all types of sustainable goal priorities that the UN system has been pursuing. Yeah. You know, when you look at research, it looks like there's going to be a more concerted effort, maybe some dollars more targeted towards doing research to uh, get ahead of this and make sure we have a a secure food system too. 
Well, certainly research is one really important pathway, not the only pathway. And it's nice to see there is a growing recognition of the the importance of innovation and technology delivering solutions. And that's where research comes in, either private research or public sector research. And the 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 realization that these are complex natural systems that we're talking about managing really requires an all tools in the toolbox approach. For many years, when we went to the COP, uh, we weren't even on the agenda, or if we were on the agenda, the ag sector was talked about as being the problem. Right. Now we're breaking through that. And there's recognition that we're a solution, not just to climate, but to food and nutrition security, obviously, to biodiversity, for improvements in the environment, for improvements in the economy. And these are all nested together. So when we go to the comp, we're not just there to talk about mitigation and how can agriculture reduce our own greenhouse gas emissions. That's a piece of the conversation. But more importantly, it's how can we sustainably intensify production to feed what will be 10 billion people by mid-century? The population is exploding. And if we don't do a better job of sustainably intensifying our production, we're going to expand the footprint of agriculture. And that's probably not the right way we want to go. So sustainable intensification of production is our first priority. The second is the need to adapt to these increasingly shocky climate-driven conditions and improve resilience. And when we do those things, utilizing what comes our way through research, technical assistance, production systems and practices that become more circular, what we find is there are a lot of co-benefits. And one of the co-benefits is we're either offsetting uh, fossil fuel use or reducing our own emissions. So it's really a good news story that starts with agriculture has to be successful to deliver the outcomes. And if agriculture is to be successful, farmers have to be successful. And that really is the heart of why we go, because farmers are significantly underrepresented in the climate convention. It's a place where everybody and their grandmother is talking about farmers, but there are not many farmers in the center of the room. So we show up with our delegates and others that we've been recruiting to come with us and offer pragmatic solutions based on our experience being on the front lines of these changing conditions. And uh, over time, we've built relationships, we've earned trust. And I think the good news is the, the parties of the conference, the countries, the stakeholders that attend and advocate for, for uh, all kinds of outcomes are beginning to see the value of agriculture at the table at the COP. No doubt. And of course, farmers have done so much without being incentivized of voluntary conservation and sustainability programs. Is that message being heard at COP28 or even prior to that? Do you think it was being heard? I think it's ramping up all the time. And when we now have an opportunity to take the floor to talk about what's actually happening on the ground, what we're experimenting with, what we're learning, what we're accomplishing, the outcomes that we're providing, it's a much different message than those that are there with the message, agriculture is broken. We need to transform the ag sector. We need to abandon our use and reliance on animal agriculture, as an example. These are, these are consistent messages that other communities of interest drive at the COP. So we're there as a clarion uh, voice pointing out how we are actually improving their quality of life in many dimensions, climate being one of multiple that are priorities. You mentioned livestock and of course uh, the methane discussion always seems to come around and you know where are we at in terms of the whole argument about um, getting rid of livestock and meat in the diet to help easily lower some of the greenhouse gas emissions. I see yesterday uh, Congressman Mike Flood from Nebraska introduced a resolution pushing back on some of the strategy that's been looked at there. I think we're making good progress there. Uh, and that's not for um, a, a lot of hard work It was is behind this. So we've been partnering with our animal agriculture um, partners that have recognized they need to also be showing up at the COP 
bringing science forward and documenting the important role that animals play, not just in a climate solution um, program, but in health and nutrition and, and local economic uh, uh, activity. The animal agriculture sector is the heart of the economy in many parts of the world, particularly in the global south. So it's silly to think about eliminating agriculture from uh, the, the, the sector and trying to solve climate problems by simply changing diets uh, across the world. Sure, there are some places where we probably consume too much red meat, but on balance, um, the answer is not to move to a plant-based diet. It's not to uh, denigrate animal agriculture husbandry and to try to replace it with something else. So that's been one of our core messages over the years, that animal agriculture uh, is a very important part. The, the, the ruminant animals that graze uh, help restore and maintain the health of really important rangelands that do a lot to sequester carbon and store water. So to just to assume that if we move away and eliminate animal agriculture, that somehow we're going to end up in nirvana is nonsense. And we're quite direct in telling the world that when we go. Now, Solutions from the Land also believes biofuels are a part of the solution and just want to get your take here on, you know, there's been a lot of criticism that the initial draft agreement here is not calling for a clear phase out of fossil fuels. A lot of countries were pushing for that. And there's been a lot of criticism about, you know, where the conference was actually held um, being you know, maybe a little politically driven. What's your take on that? And do we have to have a balance between biofuels and fossil fuels um, and have a bridge between the two? Well, our our uh, priority objectives for this COP and every COP uh, include advocating very strongly for biofuels, uh, for renewable natural gas, for ethanol, for biodiesel, for renewable diesel. These are essential tools in our toolbox. And if in fact we are going to be climate smart, if we're going to achieve the ambitious target to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius increasing, we've got to increase our reliance on renewable fuels. So for many people, uh, agriculture is the bad actor that they want to knock off and get rid of, or certain commodity crops that are the feedstocks for biofuels are one of their favorite targets. But what we've been able to demonstrate through science, through the validation of the U.S. government's national labs, that the, the benefits of a product like ethanol hit level. Uh-oh, Brad's buzzed. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he's starting with the woots. <laughs> and now a speech. I just want to say that friendship is about heart, heart and brain. Who's with me? Good thing is, he knows when he's buzzed. And my brain is saying, when it's time to go home, somebody call me a ride. Love that guy. Me too. Know your buzzed warning signs? Call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. I'm Tyne Morgan, host of U.S. Farm Report, the only weekend television show that features some of agriculture's biggest names. From custom commentary from John Phipps to the stories of antique iron with Machinery Pete to a list of more than 30 marketing analysts, our weekly program focuses on the topics that matter most to you. We invite you to join us each weekend for U.S. Farm Report, timely, trusted tradition. Time for Markets Now with the experts from ProFarmer. And joining us this morning, Brian Grady, editor of ProFarmer. And grains mixed this morning look almost an opposite um, of what we saw yesterday in terms of action, Brian. Yeah, um, probably the biggest difference is that uh, soybeans had huge gains yesterday and, and just modest losses this morning. So a little bit of profit taking there. Some of the difference uh, within the soy complex yesterday, all three of those markets were uh, working in concert with each other to the upside. Uh, meal futures are trading to the upside, but soy oil is under pressure because of heavy pressure in the crude oil market. So uh, that pressure in soy oils is helping to weigh on soybeans. Now, we, we did have another daily uh, soybean sale this morning to unknown destinations, but uh, the market isn't 
isn't pulling any support from that at the moment. Um, corn market uh, trading to the upside, but uh, the bulk of the uh, the heavy lifting is being done by the wheat market, uh, double-digit gains there and recouping uh, much of what was lost yesterday. Is that short covering, or are we watching what Russia said that their exports are going to be banned? Well, uh, that was on Durham wheat, I believe, and, the, and they're okay. a small exporter of Durham wheat anyway. So that's that's kind of a non-news uh, event, New, newsy but non-newsy in, in market uh, terms, so to speak. And cattle trying to trade higher here for the third day. Would that confirm a bottom to you, Brian? Uh, not a third day, uh, a fourth or fifth day. So okay. I think as we go through the week here, if we can continue to string along these uh, gains, then it, it does uh, would indicate that a, a low is in place. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take what we can get because it's been a long time coming here, uh, this this heavy sell-off. So um, just, just modest gains here. Uh, feeder cattle is leading to the upside at mid-morning. And then hog futures trading with a uh, mixed tone here at mid-morning. All right. Brian Grady, Pro Farmer, joining us here with Markets this morning on Agritalk. The Scoop Podcast is where we talk about tight supply chains, emerging agronomic challenges, technology tools delivering ROI. I'm Margie Echelkamp, editor of The Scoop and host of The Scoop Podcast. Join me as I interview leaders from across the ag retail sector. Farmers are working hard for every bushel and their trusted advisors are by their side. Find The Scoop Podcast wherever you find podcasts so you are up to date on everything ag retail. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward, don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Opinions expressed on AgriTalk do not necessarily reflect the views of Farm Journal Broadcasting, affiliate stations, or sponsors. Knowledge is power. We're here to charge your batteries. AgriTalk. Welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm Michelle Rook in for Chip Flory this morning. Scott Vanderwell, American Farm Bureau Federation Vice President, is joining us right now. He's out in D.C. right now. And, Scott, uh, Congress has a lot of stuff they got to get done here before the end of the year, including funding the government. Yeah, they sure do. And they're going to have a full plate. So uh, I think the, the first thing they did was delay the farm bill till next year. And it was probably good because we didn't want to rush through that. Uh, previously, we had been urging them to get it done this year, but we certainly don't want to have uh, a rush job and have bad policy in, in uh, light of other things that are going on. So, yeah, they do need to keep the government open. There are certain uh, appropriations, things that need, that they have to do before the end of the year. Yeah, they've got several spending bills that they're working on right now, I think. Yeah, that would be part of it. And there are certain things that have to be uh, done every year, and they'll have to take care of that. Uh, House GOP conservatives, so they'll sound like they're going to really dig in their heels here about putting those spending caps in place there, right, on the debt deal? Uh, you know, I haven't heard a lot about that, so I guess I can't comment on it. Yeah. So you mentioned the Farm Bill being extended for a year. Where are the negotiations right now? Because we've been seeing and hearing that maybe progress on coming up with a new Farm Bill is maybe backtracking just a little bit there. Yeah, well, we're being told by the what we call the four corners, the chairman and the and the ranking member in each of the the respective ag committees. Uh, are telling us that they want to really go to work on it right after the first of the year and get it done in the first quarter. Uh, they're the, obviously the same people that had said they wanted to get it done this year. Uh, but we're we're very supportive with that. Let's get right at it and get it done uh, because we're going to be in a presidential election year. And the further we get into that year, uh, the more chances are that, that uh, strange things can happen. When politics start getting too, in, too deeply involved in something like that, uh, that's not good. Uh, the farm bill should be the least partisan of anything we ever pass and the least political, uh, but those uh, those considerations do enter into it. Uh, the farm bill is about the security of our food supply and making sure that the industry that produces our food and energy in this country 
is financially uh, viable going into the future. And that's national security uh, issues for all of us. You bet. And even despite that, we continue to see problems on fights on funding. So hopefully that'll get worked out. The other thing that happened this morning, House Committee is considering revoking China's PNTR status. We granted that in 2000 as part of their accession into the World Trade Organization. Do you think they'll be able to get that done and what impact would it have? Well, first of all, that committee uh, doesn't have lawmaking power. They can only recommend to Congress. So that's that's one thing that should be noted. Uh, the other thing is we would not support that at all. Um, you know, our our relationship with China is, is very complex. And certainly we don't condone their uh, human rights policies that are going on. But if we cut off all trade with China uh, back and forth, that would not be productive. If you think about all the things you see in Walmart and other stores that come from China, just imagine if that would all disappear. Our consumers have voted with their dollars by buying those products that that's what they like. And I don't think our consuming public understands that if that went away, they'd have to look for uh, probably more expensive alternatives. The other half of that is that we need China for our products, for our exports. Uh, if we couldn't sell our uh, uh, corn and soybeans and other uh, meat products over there, uh, that would put a, a serious stranglehold on our agricultural economy. And the thing to note is that when products like we sell to China, food products, uh, if that got shut off, it, it wouldn't hurt their leaders and their government. It would hurt their citizens and their people, the consuming public. And uh, that's something that some people don't understand. Yeah. Speaking of China, of course, we've seen them in buying SRW wheat. There's rumors they're buying corn. We know they've been buying beans. And, you know, we just had some delegations over there that, you know, have come back and said, you know, China relations seem to be improving a bit. Do you think that's why we're seeing maybe a little bit of this buying spree from China? And is it like 2020 or not? Well, I'm not sure if it's like 2020. Uh, you know, we had the phase one trade deal with China way back and and that expired, obviously, and, and the current administration hasn't chosen to pursue that and extend it or go to a phase two or whatever might happen. Uh, we're hopeful that, that China's coming back and purchasing more products, but at the same time, they're developing relationships with other countries. Brazil is probably at the top of that list and we've got to get to work and 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 pursue uh, signing trade agreements with other countries, including China, to make sure we have markets for our products. Well, I know Farm Bureau has been part of a pretty growing coalition now that has been critical of the administration for their lack of trade agenda and the lack of free trade agreements that we need to sign, right? That's right. And there's there are hundreds of trade agreements being signed all around the world. And right now, we're not part of very many of them. And I'm not sure what those numbers are. Uh, but the, the administration had said they don't like multilateral uh, agreements, so they were going to work on bilateral agreements. Well, that's fine if they want to do that, but we don't see any action at all. And we've asked, uh, you know, about extending the Chinese agreement and whatever else they're doing, and, and we just don't get much much of an answer. It's it's like they aren't real interested in in developing that international trade. And right now we're we're uh, really backsliding in that area, and we can see it in our markets. Uh, corn, for instance, is bringing about two dollars a bushel less than it was last February or March, and, and that's a that's a pretty drastic hit to the bottom line for our American farmers. Yeah, although some of that, obviously, Scott, is just due to a bigger crop, but you know, trade does and exports do play a big role in that. All right, what about ag labor? Um, you know, you talk to just about any group, and they say ag labor or the lack thereof is one of the number one problems in agriculture right now. What are we doing to try to fix it? It doesn't seem like uh, the political wind is blowing in our favor to get anything done. That's right. It's a it's really a third rail issue. A lot of people are are kind of scared of their shadow uh, to, to illustrate it uh, uh, to try to fix this. Nothing has been done for 25 years or more, and there's some proposals out there. But the first thing that we hear from our members that uh, deal with immigrant labor or, or any labor really. It's that the, the wage rate is just killing them. It's, it's too high when you uh, combine it with the requirements that they provide transportation and housing. Uh, there are, are people that tell us that when you get all the costs that are mandata mandated by the government uh, all piled up on, on each other, you're talking 
uh, $30 plus per hour for uh, people to do uh, work in the fields and whatever's going on. So it's not only the wage rate, but also the wage rate methodology, which came out on the, at the end of March of 23, and the way that's figured, and it, it decoupled it. And so uh, that adds to the stress that's put on American producers. And you have to remember that the, that agriculture is competing with other industries in some cases too. And uh, and these these folks, our members that are telling us about this are saying, I've, I've got one or two years left and if something doesn't change, I'm gonna be out of business because I just can't do it financially. Yeah. So Farm Bureau has policy on the books on ag labor and you know where are you at right now? And will you change some of that policy in your uh, upcoming convention in January? Well, we certainly have uh, lots of proposals in regard to labor, and uh, we're actually uh, going through that process right now where the state presidents serve as the resolutions committee in, within our organization. And we go through all the proposals that come from states, and obviously in a, something like labor, there are uh, duplicative ones that come from several states. And what that committee does is combine them and, and make them uh, uh, usable for the delegate session that we'll get together in uh, Salt Lake City in January and go through. And at that point, then the, the delegates from all the states will decide what our policy is for this coming year. And so I can't tell you, I, honestly, uh, whether they'll change it or certainly there will be some tweaks. Uh, but the, the two things I talked about, the wage rate and the methodology, are two of the things that we hear most from our members. So I would say that will probably be uh, still at the top of the priority list. You bet. And I should have asked about this when we were talking about China, but I know the foreign ag land ownership bill has been reintroduced and there's certainly a lot of discussion about this, um, you know, in a lot of different states. But where do you see that bill going? Is there enough support to get it passed? And are there unintended consequences if it is? Well, that's a good question. And that's our concern is that unintended consequences can really rise up. Uh, the first one we think about is for research and development. Uh, these companies, and, and there aren't that many companies that are owned by American companies anymore. Um, they're, they're all overseas. And the fact is that they hire Americans to work there, though. They're, they're doing the research. They're running the, the U.S. division of whatever company it is. And the workers here are, are U.S. workers. And they're doing research in our country that uh, benefits American farmers. So if they own a piece of land or research or uh, 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 rent it, uh, they're doing research on that. And that's what concerns us about banning this uh, just outright. And uh, the bill that uh, is in Congress right now uh, would, would uh, restrict all of that unless the US president approves it. Uh, that makes us a little bit nervous. That puts all the power in one person's hands again. And, Understandably, the U.S. president is the most powerful person in the world, but uh, these are things that really affect a lot of people, so we have to be careful about it. Well, I have talked to uh, some of the congressmen and senators that are offering the legislation. They feel it's a national security issue. Do you agree with that, especially when it, you look at China? Well, it can be because, uh, you know, you think about the situation in North Dakota where they were trying to buy some land by the Air Force Base. Uh, we've got a process in place already, the, the CFIUS committee on the federal level that's supposed to be looking at that kind of thing. And right. we support the part of the bill that says that puts the USDA secretary on that committee. And so really that that Air Force base should have been on the list of politically or uh, uh, sensitive areas and they should have right. caught that. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Scott Vanderwall, American Farm Bureau Vice President. When we come back, Veronica Bradley is joining us from Clean Fuels Alliance America. Has your child swallowed your medicine, your laundry detergent, your nail polish remover? Call the Poison Helpline. Have you inhaled paint thinner, glue, pesticides? Call the Poison Helpline. Have a question about a dose, a fume, something your kid just drank? Call the Poison Helpline. Poisonings can happen at the home, on the job, or in the great outdoors. Call the Poison Helpline first for fast, free advice from medical professionals. Call 1-800-222-1222 anytime, anywhere. 1-800-222-1222. Save the number, save a life. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is Andrew McRae, host of the American Countryside. 
I'm also a farmer and rancher from Northwest Missouri, and I hope you'll join me each week for Farming the Countryside as we take a look at the top issues impacting agriculture as told by the people farming and working in our industry. We'll talk about markets and trade, share some of the latest tips and trends from grain and livestock producers, and take a look at trends impacting rural America. Join me for Farming the Countryside on many local radio stations or on your favorite podcast platform, or just go to farmingthecountryside.com. Hi, I'm Ag Day host Clinton Griffiths, and I invite you to join me each morning as we cover the nation's food system, from fields of green to orchards of orange and livestock everywhere in between. America runs on agriculture, and here at Ag Day, agriculture is what we do best. Listen as our analysts track the markets, learn about innovations in technology and sustainability, and live the country lifestyle through the eyes of rural America. Join me, Clinton Griffiths, for Ag Day, the country experience. I taught for 20 years until I started forgetting my lectures. Eventually, he had to quit. Getting his early Alzheimer's diagnosis was hard, but it gave us time to take control of the situation together. I can't imagine going through this without him. If you or your family are noticing changes, it could be Alzheimer's. Talk about seeing a doctor together. For more information, visit alz.org slash time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Kurt Wolfolk, Senior Manager, Crop Nutrition Technologies for Mosaic, joins us right now. Mosaic recently announced an expansion into biologicals to support a well-known portfolio of fertilizers. It's part of Mosaic's Advanced Crop Nutrition. Kurt, tell me more about that. Explain how biologicals and fertilizers work together. Yeah, you bet. So we're spending a lot of time with research and discovery chip and thinking about the return on that investment, return on the fertilizer investment, or what is in the soil from a nutrient standpoint. How do the bacteria, how can a biological that we can add either in the fall on a dry granular fertilizer, or put it on a, a spring, or even with side dress applications, there's, there's more flexibility now, more than ever, with some of the biological packages. And just how can we get full efficiency out of that fertilizer investment and that nutrient dollar? Okay. So help us out here. How can growers put this advanced crop nutrition to work on their own farm? Many growers across North America know Mosaic as the provider of performance products that balance crop nutrition, level of macronutrients and micronutrients that they've come to lean on and trust with Microessentials Inspire and KMAG. But now to really bolster that foundational piece of that dry granular fertilizer uh, soil fertility program, again, our Mosaic Biosciences offers a power code, a biopath type product with bacteria. And so lean, lean on your retailer that you've come to trust and know uh, for performance products of Mosaic. And you can also go to cropnutrition.com to learn more about balanced crop nutrition and the concept we're talking about here, Chip, with advanced crop nutrition. All right, cropnutrition.com to learn more about it. Thank you, Kurt. That is Kurt Wolfolk, Senior Manager, Crop Nutrition Technologies at Mosaic. Lower crop prices and extreme weather can take a toll on your profits and peace of mind. Crop insurance is a powerful tool to not only protect your financial security, but give you confidence to market grain, invest in your operation, and provide for what matters most, your family. At Farmers Mutual Hail, we understand that, so we've created products that allow you to customize plans for up to 95% coverage. It's time to rethink your crop insurance and choose FMH, America's crop insurance company, to protect your livelihood. Visit connect.fmh.com today. There I was, right along. I saw the corn lean down in the field, gooseneck again. Even though I tried everything, new traits, existing soil insecticides, every corn grower knows the hassle of gooseneck corn. But now there's Nerisma insecticide from BASF, a better, stronger infro insecticide that controls corn rootworm and below ground pests. Stand up for your corn with Nerisma insecticide. Ask your authorized BASF retailer about Nerisma and always read and follow label directions. Chickens have come home to roost. Find out whose fence they're perched on today on AgriTalk. Well, if you're just joining us, uh, we are rolling through the hour here on AgriTalk. I'm Michelle Rook in for Chip Florida today. And, of course, we've been following the COP developments. We started off the hour kind of talking a little bit about some of those developments in Dubai here over the last 
week or so, Director of Environmental Sciences, uh, Veronica Bradley, is with us with the Clean Fuels Alliance America. She's been following some of these COP developments. And Veronica, thanks for being with us. I wanted to start off talking about, you know, this initial draft agreement that has been being developed in at the COP28 is not called for a clear phase out of fossil fuels. There's a lot of countries that have been pushing for that, and that's kind of controversial right now. What is your take on that? You know, thanks for having me, Michelle. Um, you know, from our perspective, certainly we need to be agreeing to get off of fossil fuels. If you think of greenhouse gas emissions and our earth, like a water into a bathtub, um, you know, you're you're pulling fossil fuel from under the ground and you're emitting it, you're filling up that bathtub and something like a biofuel, like the clean fuels that our members produce is taking that water, taking those emissions and recycling them and, and using uh, that carbon in the atmosphere plants that, that produce our fuels. So we're, we're avoiding that filling up and overflowing that bathtub with water or, you know, creating that tipping point and, and irreversible climate change damage. So, you know, there's been a lot of criticisms about where COP28 was held and that as far as this language that maybe OPEC, it looked like they maybe dictated it word for word. What's your take on that? Well, I can't speak to international negotiations, uh, but, you know, Different countries have different interests, and it certainly, you know, behooves the the countries that are in OPEC and and the the countries involved uh, in hosting COP twenty eight that um, their economies stay strong and that and they rely on uh, on fossil fuel uh, development and use uh, across the globe. So biofuels obviously are ready made. You know, sometimes we've talked about how it doesn't feel like the administration has been as quick to recognize or acknowledge uh, the role that biofuels, which are already here, can make in climate change. Do you think the pendulum is swinging on that at all? Oh, absolutely. I think there is very much so a lot of excitement in this administration and I think uh, in, in corporate America as well outside of you know government mandates or government programs uh, for biofuels. I think there's a lot of recognition um, kind of as I was mentioning that biofuels uh, can help with mitigating climate change and can help us get off of our dependence on fossil fuel. So how Talk about how this is going to trickle down to the farmer, because there is a lot of questions when I'm out covering stories in the country about how carbon scoring and carbon intensity scores are going to work and how they're going to benefit farmers. Sure. And it's really I, I completely appreciate that it's quite confusing. It's a very technical uh, area. But generally, the way carbon intensity scoring works is it takes the carbon emissions that are associated with each step in the supply chain to produce a biofuel and adds them all up and then values that fuel relative to petroleum so that you can see the benefits, the environmental benefits of the biofuel uh, and quantify that uh, to kind of our, our business case right now of using fossil fuels. So um, how that would trickle back to the farmer, of course, is by lower carbon intensity uh, feedstocks, you know, whether that's soy or canola uh, or other oil seeds in, in the case of uh, a biodiesel or, or renewable diesel or, or uh, sustainable aviation fuel. Um, and that gives it, a, a, you know, an additional benefit, a lower carbon intensity score associated with those, those lower carbon uh, management practices, uh, which should, in, in a in correct policy environments and market uh, transparency should should you know provide a premium to the the farmer who who makes a lower carbon intensity uh, feedstock. And one of the things that you wanted to mention is that we're not just looking about how much um, biofuels can lower carbon intensity, but there's a time value that is associated with it. So, you know, as you kind of pointed out, biofuels are here today and something that, you know, I think gets glossed over in a lot of our conversations because so many industries are looking out to decarbonizing in, in 2050 or, or maybe even 2040. 
Um, but the the amount of carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere, you know, accumulates again, thinking about that bathtub. And if we can lower the rate that the water's going in the bathtub, lower the rate now of the emissions going into the atmosphere, we have more time to adapt to climate change, to be able to advance technologies to help further mitigate, mitigate climate change. So by reducing CO2 emissions today, you're doing more. And a good way to think about this as we've looked at kind of considering the, the way that um, carbon fluctuates between the atmosphere and, and the terrestrial environment, that if you reduce one ton of emissions today, you have the same climate impacts as reducing 13 tons of carbon five years from now. So, you know, kind of put that another way, you're going to impact the environment more by making that switch today than if you wait. And if you if you wait, you have to make up for that loss, that impact that you let happen on an annual basis uh, at a rate of 13 times um, for every five years you wait to take action. There's, like you said, a lot of confusion out there right now about um, carbon intensity and scores and biofuels. And so, you know, how do you see farmers winning out of this and how do they best position themselves for it? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, like I said, you know, farmers can really win. I mean, they're kind of already winning. We we recognize that we need agriculture. We need these renewable uh, feedstocks for our fuel. Um, and that's only going to grow. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity um, and, and it, it would really be smart to keep an eye on this space. All right. Thanks so much, Veronica Bradley, Clean Fuels Alliance America, Director of Environmental Science, joining us here on AgriTalk. I'm Michelle Rook in for Chip Flory. And join us this afternoon for AgriTalk PM. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. It's going to be great this afternoon. My guest will be Naomi Bloom. Looking forward to the conversation. Michelle, excellent work this morning. Thank you much, Davis. I'll be joining you this afternoon. I can't wait. Come back 206 Central. More AgriTalk. Uh-oh. Brad's buzzed. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He's starting with the woots. <laughs> <laughs> and now a speech. I just want to say that friendship is about heart. Heart and brain. Who's with me? Good thing is, he knows when he's buzzed. And my brain is saying, when it's time to go home, somebody call me a ride. Love that guy. Me too. Know your buzzed warning signs? Call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. There's danger out there. It lurks on highways and quiet neighborhood streets. It's more likely to kill you than a shark and more terrifying than the biggest snake. Distracted driving claims lives every day. Every notification, swipe, social post, video, or selfie while driving risks your life. So while you might think public speaking or the zombie apocalypse is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.